My grandfather never met his father. He was killed in 1918, rescuing men from a no-man's land, and lies buried somewhere in France. It was likewise many years before I learned I had an Uncle Buster, who was killed in 45 and, as far as I know, remains somewhere in Italy. They, like too many, sacrificed their futures so that I could have mine. I was taught this awareness through history classes and movies growing up, but it was made real for me early. At age nine, when living in England, my parents and I stopped to visit the Cambridge American Cemetery. There, on 30 acres of East Anglian land, rest nearly 4,000 who perished abroad in World War II. Before exiting our car, I'm sure my mom commanded me to be on good behavior. If she did, though, it wasn't necessary because the sacredness of those grounds is something I remember immediately feeling. What's more, while separated by oceans and thousands of miles, Walking amongst those white marble crosses engraved with home states like Ohio, Maine, and Texas was the first time I truly recognized the smallness of our world. Regretfully, whether friend or foe, few forces remind us of our interconnectedness more than the tragedy of war. And today, we'll pay our respects at one small but similarly hallowed site that recalls these same lessons right on Route 66. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, I'll mention that today's episode features a number of readings, some of which were performed by one of my favorite storytellers, Charlie Connolly, who's the brains behind the podcast Coastal Stories. An accomplished UK-based writer, in each episode, Charlie shares tales from history about people and their interactions with the sea. He talks about sailors and shipwrecks, but also lighthouses, pleasure piers, cockle gatherers, and even a guy named Dando the Oyster Eater. Read with Charlie's expert narration over the sounds of waves recorded on British beaches, more than brine-encrusted anecdotes, Coastal Stories celebrates the joys, follies, and tiny acts of heroism and kindness that illuminate the human experience. It's also one of the most soothing listens I've ever encountered, and urge you to find Coastal Stories wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's get on with the show. The headstone of Fred Tuft stands alongside a row of 14 others, all bearing the badge of the Royal Air Force. Having died roughly six weeks before Pearl Harbor, his grave was this plot's first, and at age 31, he's also the oldest of those buried here. Below his name and the symbol of a cross read the words, He nobly gave his life in all its fullness, England us to save. Small Union Jack flags have been placed alongside each marker, 
while a larger one waves high above, overlooking all through this morning's damp October breeze. A bagpiper plays Amazing Grace and Tribute, while a few undeterred by a passing storm look on. But this isn't Yorkshire, the Midlands, Dorset, or Surrey. This is the G.A.R. Cemetery in Miami, Oklahoma. G.A.R. Cemetery stands for Grand Army of the Republic. This cemetery is not any different than any other cemetery. Every grave out here holds a life that meant something for many people. The lives of the people need to be rejoiced and celebrated and not forgotten. Indeed, every life has a story. And these grounds provide a resting place for some 21,000. Yet the stories of these young British flyers are unique, and Nancy Bro, GAR's warm, blonde director, invites me in her office to tell me about how they came to lie here, so far from home. During the war, when England was involved in the war, but the United States was not, uh, England found very quickly that they weren't able to train their their cadets, their pilots, in their own country because it was too dangerous for them. So they made arrangements with the United States to open some training facilities here in the States so that they could bring their Englishmen over here to train them to be pilots. Some prominent community members actually went back for the city of Miami and convinced them that this was the place that needed to be set up for them. The first class actually uh, was brought into Miami on April 13th of 1941. There were overall, I believe, 27 courses and it lasted until the end of the war, 1945. There was over 2,000, it was 2,124 cadets that actually trained here, British cadets. And then 117 American cadets. And out of all of those, 1,493 pilots got their wings. One of the main stories I've heard numerous times from several cadets that I've had uh, conversations with over the years was that many of them thought they were coming to Miami, Florida. So they were, they were a little, you know, sad that they weren't going to get the beaches. But once they got here, they, uh, they've all told me that Oklahoma, Miami, Oklahoma holds such a huge place in their heart and the, the community reached out to them and made their stay here so warm and welcoming. It goes without saying that this rural community near Oklahoma's northern edge bears no resemblance to Florida, let alone England. And the British boys who found themselves here no doubt had to make a few adjustments. Letters home made frequent mention of the summer heat and thunderstorms, which inspired one unnamed cadet to pen the following poem. When we're back in dear old England, and we hear the gentle rain, with its pitter, pitter, patter, beating on the window pane, let us silently remember that we ought not to complain, for it never rains in England quite like Oklahoma rain. Others, like F.C. Rainbird, found amusement in the language differences of his new American neighbors. 
I was invited to Sunday dinner by one family. Then they repeated the invitation a week later. Where's Russ, I asked. Oh, he's just piddling in the garden, she replied. I was puzzled. I knew they had a modern toilet indoors. He soon appeared and it became clear that he'd been fiddling about in the garden, as we would have put it. Most accounts, though, reveal a group of young men quite taken with their new surroundings and American hospitality. Nancy tells me marriage licenses indicate a few found local brides, while all seem to make mention of the food and accommodations, which 19-year-old Peter McCallum extolled in a letter dated August 26, 1941. It is a new school, and you could just not imagine what a wonderful place it is. We have four fellows to a room furnished like a hotel, and two men to clean up and clean our shoes and do anything we want doing. We fly from 7am until 12, then have ground school in the afternoons. The food in the camp is excellent and beautifully served by waiters. The national drink seems to be iced tea, served with lemon and sugar. A good student, Peter excitedly described his first solo flight in another letter home soon after. September the 7th, 1941. I went solo at 9 hours 20 minutes, which is nearly 2 hours below the average time. I was second to go solo for my course. The penalty for this feat was buying everyone else in the flight a drink in the canteen. In case you misinterpret this, the drink was orangeade. Oklahoma is one of the few dry states in America, and there are no pubs or licensed houses of any kind. I have met a very nice American family in Miami by the name of Slayton. Mr. Slayton gave me a lift the other evening, and as I wasn't going anywhere in particular, he invited me to his house for dinner. I spent the weekend with them, and they gave me a swell time. They're teaching me to ride a horse, and I had a good time driving a 40-power Buick. At first it was difficult to keep on the right side of the road. He'd mention his growing friendship with the Slaytons a month later. October the 1st, 1941. Last Sunday, the local Episcopal church gave a tea in one of the hotels to the British cadets. It was a help-yourself-from-the-table affair, and all had a good time. There were lots of Americans there, and everyone got invitations for Christmas. I had to refuse, because my friends, the Slaytons, have already booked me up on every occasion I go out from now until I leave. Tragically, though... Peter wouldn't live to experience Christmas with the Slaytons or pen another letter to his family, as he became one of the first trainees to die when his plane fell over Kansas during night training on November 13th. Yet the people of Miami have never forgotten his loss or those of his comrades who remain here, as they not only continue to maintain their graves, but gather each year to honor them in a remembrance ceremony, which is what has brought me here this weekend. Regretfully, though, when I asked Nancy if she can share details of any of these other young men's passings, she confesses that many records have been frustratingly lost to time. Well, I don't have all of their stories, unfortunately. I have done a lot of research in the years that I've been here. Fred Tuft, he was uh, the very first cadet that lost his life. It wasn't in a flying incident. He actually walked into the propeller and lost his life from that. It was extremely tragic. Um, there was four, four gentlemen, four cadets that died in one accident 
uh, two planes with two cadets in each one. They collided in, in air, and they all four lost their lives. Um, there's just so many, and I wish I could find all their information, but it's just very difficult when we're talking second and third generations, and these kids were so young that they didn't have children except for, that we know of, except for one. That one child is John Racebeck, whose father, Ken, he never knew. My mother and father married in, in 1942, which was uh, 26th of June, in fact. And that was a date which was to become a very significant and more than just a wedding anniversary. Um, my, my dad, Ken, he joined the RAF in 1943 and he was selected for aircrew training. And then he was selected for advanced training in the USA. So he left the, he left for the USA in January 1944 and I was born three weeks later. So I was born on February the 19th, 1944, and unfortunately he lost his life. It was many, many, many years before I really started to think about my, shall I call him my biological father. You know, I was too young to dwell on, on the horrors of World War II. I just accepted he lay, that he lay in his grave in Miami, Oklahoma, thousands of miles away, um, and I didn't know very much about him, except from stories from my family. A retired mining engineer who lives in Kent, John is quick to tell me over Zoom that his childhood was a happy one. His mother remarried. He was blessed with a half-brother and much-loved stepfather whom he always called Dad. Still, the details he shares of his parents' romance and war experiences are powerful. He climbed into his plane on the 26th of June, which was their wedding anniversary, and he was in the cockpit of his 86 Harvard, started the engine, taxied along the runway, ready to take off in preparation of an advanced session of aerobatics. But little did he know that he was approaching the last few minutes of his life. So my mom received a very impersonal telegram and when she went to the door, she thought it was a message for her wedding anniversary. But instead it said, regret to inform you that your husband, Kenneth Raysbeck, has lost his life as a result of an aircraft accident on the 26th of June, 1944. Now that was a huge shock, of course. And there was me, four months old, in my cot. She never went to America. She was a very emotional woman. It hit her very, very hard. She loved my dad, and she wrote him a letter every day of her life. And he had a, on his locker, he had a picture of her and a picture of me. And I got the, I received those photographs back. They still got the holes in there where they were pinned to the locker. But, you know, life had to go on. I don't think my mum wanted to look a dwell back. My mum always used to cry on Remembrance Sundays. But she was a very plucky woman, and I think she was determined to make a life for us all, at the same time not forgetting the sacrifice that my dad made. At the same time, John says that if you ever read about children who are adopted or lose parents early, there always comes a point when they begin to wonder and ask questions, and he readily acknowledges that's what happened to him. 
So, in 1995, when he learned a group of his dad's classmates would be reuniting in Miami, he decided to join them in pilgrimage. They said to me, it might be a good idea for you to go and look at your dad's grave before we have the ceremony. And it was, um, it was a very moving experience. And it reminded me, it reminded me of Rupert Brooks' poem when um, this corner is forever England and seeing all the Union Jacks. I, I, I felt that he was well looked after. I was very impressed with all of this. And of course, when I, when I heard my father, they always, they always called the names out. And when they called my dad's name out, that really got to me the first time I heard it. Nobody can fail to be totally awestruck by the work that these people do. And the reality is they don't get hard. I doubt they get any feedback from anybody because life's moved on. But while life does move on, some questions for John have persisted over the years, which inspired him to reach out to Nancy more than two decades after his first visit. I have such a thirst and a hunger for information about these guys. They don't have anybody over here. All of their family is across the ocean in a completely different country, and their parents are all gone. They may have siblings. More than likely, if they do, they're gone. And when I get just a piece, just the slightest little nugget of something, I take it and I run with it and I research it and I see if I can get any links on anything else and tie it to something else or whatever. I never thought that I would be such an avid researcher, but that is definitely something that has came along with this position. Unaware that a surviving link like John existed, Nancy sprung into action. And with the help of local historian Philip Blair, succeeded in not only pinpointing the soybean field where Kenneth Raisbeck crashed, but identifying two living witnesses who remembered seeing the accident firsthand. At this, John returned to the States again in 2016 to walk the field, meet with these bystanders, and, of course, attend the cemetery ceremony, where he was welcomed as a guest of honor. But if this weren't enough, Nancy surprised John by arranging for him to fly over the field in a Harvard AT-6, which was the same plane his father piloted. One thing, I didn't know anything about it. And Nancy said to me the night, the night before, she said, you don't have to do this, John, but tomorrow morning is going to be a Harvard, 86 Harvard, on the tarmac outside the new airport, which is just across the runway from the old hangar. So there it will be. If you feel like getting into it, please do so. And it's all on us. So I, I was more than excited to, to go there. I, I could not contain myself with excitement. I got in the cockpit. He, he, he flew me <clears throat> up to the crash site. <clears throat> I did a couple of circuits around the crash site. Beneath me were a dozen people waving old glory, Union Jack, and, and so on. And then on the way back, he flew over my father's grave. So I could see the whole picture was there. I could see the old runways. I could see the old hangar, the parking area where the planes were parked. That was a wonderful, wonderful, but you know, 
I think that was the most touching thing ever. Nancy tells me that she never once thought she'd be working at a cemetery or that it could be a dream job. But she says it is, and experiences like these are precisely why. At the same time, she isn't the first to occupy this position and credits her predecessor, Kim Horn, with instilling her sense of duty to these men, which is a value other local keepers have held sacred for years. Fran- Franti Mayhill, everybody called her Frances, um, she was an amazing woman. She loved her British boys. Um, she took, took a lot of them in under her wing as though they were her own sons. Her daughter, Nellie, was uh, smitten by one, and uh, Jack Taylor, he, he did suffer and, and was killed during the war. But Mrs. Hill took care of these graves, and from what I'm understanding, what I've read, she went to every funeral. She'd walk up the railroad track, toting her tote bags and, and tend to the graves. She'd weed them and water them and plant flowers on them and just took care of them diligently for over 40 years. She was a blessing to those boys and to those boys' families. She wrote letters back home to their parents and, you know, made sure that they got flowers for their birthdays from their parents. One of the cadets uh, found out that she had done that and he wrote a letter to the UK and they actually awarded her the King's Medal. And that's quite an established award uh, for her selflessness and caring and, and giving that she had done for the, the British graves over here. She wanted to be buried at the, at the north end of the row of the British graves. So she is right next to them and then her husband is buried to the north of her. I mean, what bigger word could, could we say? But thank you and bless you. In many ways, I think one could view Nancy as Miss Hill's heir apparent. And when I asked Nancy why it's important to maintain this vigil after so many years, her response is immediate and clear. I know that they don't have anybody else here. I know that if we as the cemetery staff don't do something for them that chances are no one will. I, I also know there are numerous cemeteries over in England and across the world that they hold ceremonies. Why wouldn't we? We were all in the war together and there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't celebrate and remember and honor their lives just like we do our own war dead. Yes, World War II was 80 years ago, but people need to remember, because if we forget, that's when it's all gonna happen again. And I guarantee you it won't be another 80 years. Following our conversation, she walks me over to tour the burial plot to view the site before tomorrow's gathering. I ask her what she thinks when she looks at these tombstones. They were so young, so young. They were just kids. I mean, you look at here and 17, 19, 20. We have 
uh, Herbert Haxley was 23, and he may have had a child, but we don't know. This is all very sad to take in, and this feeling is not lost on Nancy at all. But while present, I don't think sadness is what guides her. I was waiting for you to say it, but over the phone you said, I've just fallen in love with these boys. Oh, I have. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, these boys, they're just part of me. They're part of my life. They're part of my family, and I've just fallen in love with them. This love is apparent the next morning when I see the care with which she's orchestrated the ceremony. Each grave has been thoughtfully decorated with red, white, and blue flowers whose colors accent the flags displayed. The sounds of Artie Shaw, Vera Lynn, and other artists of the 40s pour out of speakers that greet arriving visitors, while I notice a legion of uniform riflemen congregating some feet away. They're here to give a gun salute, while the city of Tulsa's pipes and drum corps have driven 90 miles to provide musical accompaniment. There to be prayers, a speech from the head of the Royal British Legion's Tulsa detachment, and tribute from squadron leader Rob Jimmett, who serves as the UK's foreign liaison at Tinker Air Force Base. Tall and dressed in an impeccably crisp uniform adorned with medals of recognition, he's participated in this memorial for the past six years and shares with me what a gathering of this nature means to him as a serviceman abroad. As I say, we are... In the middle of nowhere, relatively speaking, I had never heard of Miami, Oklahoma. I hadn't heard of the program. It's incredibly moving that um, this far away, bearing in mind we're what six and seven thousand miles away from home, that someone is taking the time and effort to remember um, people who passed, gosh, eighty years ago now. It's a long time ago. I think it's important that we maintain British connections with this place. Um, sometimes we get a little bit confused as I think to what defence is all about and it's ceremonies like this that remind us exactly what we are trying to achieve. And if you could say anything personally uh, to these uh, young men, what would you say? It's a phrase that we actually don't use in the UK uh, and that would be thank you for your service. Um, we, we, I don't know why we don't say it in the UK, we really should. Uh, we should recognise that what these chaps did Ultimately, they gave up their lives uh, and were unable to perform um, in the battlefield. But they and their cohort uh, undoubtedly changed the tide of the war. Uh, Having those extra 4,500 pilots there, um, that made the difference. That's what allowed us to win the Battle of Britain uh, and ultimately lead to D-Day and then the the recovery of uh, Europe as we know it today. Just then, the wind picks up. And what had been a few light sprinkles morphs into a sudden downpour, not unlike the one the cadet wrote of in the poem he sent home. The speakers are turned off, and those who have gathered race to their cars for shelter. At the sound of thunder, Nancy abruptly cancels the proceedings, but within moments of making this call, the storm dissipates as swiftly as it arrived. All but a few have left, and... A tangible feeling of frustration with a touch of chaos has taken over the now damp affair. Then, without notice, a solitary bugler emerges from a van, faces the flag and burial plot, and immediately takes charge.
At this, Officer Jimmett moves to the podium where he begins to read, as Nancy proceeds to lay a rose at each grave. LAC Fred Tuft. He nobly gave life in all his fullness to save us. LAC Peter McCallan, only son of M.M. and Ari McCallan of England, forever in our thoughts. LAC Alan Brown, his short life was a life of service. There is no gun salute, no speeches, no pomp and circumstance, just respect, dignity, and on my part, a few tears. LAC Donald A. Harfield. God gave him to us. God has taken him away. Thy will be done. LAC Ralph K. Price. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. If I should die, think only this of me. That there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by the sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter, learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. Those words are from Rupert Brooks' poem, The Soldier and were read by my dear friend, actor Jeffrey Hardy. Thanks to him and my other readers, Nick Denton and Charlie Conley, whose show Coastal Stories I again highly recommend. Thanks as well to John Raceback, Officer Jimmett, and especially Nancy Bro, not only for speaking with me, but showing me great hospitality in Miami. I'm including a link to GAR's website, where you can see pictures of all 15 cadets, you can also hear more from Nancy on the Route 66 podcast and Our American Stories. Also, huge thanks to one of my favorite people, Nancy Winston, for her piano accompaniment. I also thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow and guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.